Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. This weekend, Dairy is pleased to be home to the Dollar Baby Film Festival. For those unfamiliar, the films being shown are from up-and-coming filmmakers from around the world. Admission to this three-day event is as the name implies, either one dollar or one baby. Choose carefully, citizens. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And today we are joined by the organizers of the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival, Barker Street Cinemas, James Douglas and Norm Coyne. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Now, uh, before we get to our interview proper, why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about yourselves, who you are and and what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is James Douglas. And uh, along with Norm, I am uh, a partner in Barker Street Cinema which is a film company that we started in order to make a dollar baby of our own three years ago. And I'm a director and a producer and a writer. Also in my my daytime job is I work as the public programming and global media development lead for Barkerville Historic Town and Park, which is a very large gold rush Victorian restored wooden town. It's the largest historic site in Western North America, located in the central interior of British Columbia, Canada. Wow, that was an awesome. (laughs) 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 My name is Norm Coyne. I am also obviously a partner in Barker Street Cinema. James and I, uh, we've worked on a few things together through Barker Street Cinema. One also being a follow-up series pilot called Wicked Ways, where we actually worked with a couple of folks from an event I host up here in Prince George, which is a Comic-Con called Northern FanCon. And that was with uh, Leanna Vamp and Mark Muir. We've actually been kind of farming... Uh, Northern FanCon for relationships to work with us. So guests and uh, other filmmakers to work with us on these upcoming projects, of which we actually just filmed a feature with a couple of folks, Sarah Shack and Shane Putzlocker, called A Great North Christmas in Prince George. Not really Stephen King related, but a, a pretty big uh, landmark thing, a movie for the city. So That's fantastic. But by the way, I watched the trailer for Wicked Ways and it looks awesome. Right on. Thank you. So if our listeners haven't seen it, head to the, their YouTube and, and watch it. It's fantastic. Before we dive in, we have a couple of very important questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And don't worry, these aren't, I mean, nothing bad is going to happen if you answer wrong. We'll just immediately end the Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> our first one, we would just like to know what your introduction was to Stephen King's work. For me, uh, this is James, I can very, very vividly remember being in the fifth grade and uh, going over to a sleepover at a friend's house, Victor Peters, I think was his name, and his brother had, I don't remember if it was some, if it was just playing on TV or if it was like the early VHS stuff or, or something, but somehow his older brother had a copy of The Shining and it was like... 11 o'clock at night, his parents had already gone to bed, and I just remember his brother going, okay, guys, I've got something to show you, and it's going to scare the living... (laughs) 
proud of you. Uh, but just so you know, and you cannot tell my parents, you can't tell our parents that, that I let you watch this. And so I just remember sitting there in front of this, again, like old cathode ray tube, fuzzy color television, watching a, a slightly less than, than cinematic quality version of The Shining. But it did exactly what that guy said <laughs> it was going to do. It scared the bejesus out of me. And from that point on, though, I was hooked. I think I'd heard the name Stephen King before, but now I kind of really realized at 11 or 12 years old exactly what people were talking about when they talked about him. And at that point forth, I, I, I made a point of, you know, trying to see as many of the films as I possibly could. And then ultimately, when I got into high school, just became a voracious reader of, mm -hmm. of his novels and short stories in particular. Do you have a favorite film? I have a lot. You know, I like a lot of them for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one the very first of the of my favorites was probably Stand by Me, just because of the the quality of the storytelling in in that piece. Probably the best adaptation is still The Shawshank Redemption, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and uh, it's it's. I think Darabont has, you know, definitely with his relationship with King and just his understanding of the material, except for The Mist, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh, no. um, I really think that he he really was able to, with Shawshank, just grab that story and and make it almost better than than the source material, for sure. Yeah, he does a really great job. Uh, what about you, Norm? What's your first Stephen King experience? So I remember my brother had similar. He had like a VHS tape and it was Creepshow. Oh, and nice. I remember Excellent. watching Creepshow and I felt so sorry for, and it was Stephen King's character. I felt so sorry for this dude <laughs> who basically like was just kind of falling apart because of like the, the goo or whatever yeah. <laughs> it was. But, uh, and I was just like, I remember I watched it over and over because I was like, I was just trying to think, I'm like, what did he do to deserve this? this <laughs> <laughs> and then it kind of blew my mind. Like I remember uh, my brother's like, well, that's the guy who he's the writer, right? Like he's a writer of the, all these crazy, crazy, you know, horror stories. And, and I was just like, oh, wow, that's so crazy. So that's for me anyways. Are you a fan of Creepshow 2 or 3? Do you know what? I haven't watched any of the, uh, uh, and that's like the seasons on Hulu is what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, actually the movies. And there's that new season on Hulu too. Well, look at me. I'm like, a, I'm not as big a, a Stephen King fan that I didn't even know there was a two or three. <laughs> If I may say, I've seen two, and I and I am a fan of that in its cheesy, glorious nature. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know there was a three, so now suddenly I'm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that's almost a trick question because three is not well regarded. It's it almost has nothing to do with anything. It's like I don't know if they're just trying to capitalize off of the name. So I don't know if you need to watch it, but. <laughs> But I probably will now. <laughs> yeah, if you're feeling like a completionist, you should go for it. <laughs> yeah, my OCD is going to force me to do that. <laughs> On our show, we like to talk about what we call Stephen King moments. And it is something that has stood out to us either in an adaptation, you know, movie or a book that we're reading that just sticks with us. It can be something mundane. It can be something really like over and wild. Do either of you have a Stephen King moment from any of his work that you really enjoy or even his work that maybe you didn't necessarily enjoy? Well, I think that's actually where mine comes in because uh, I do have several and there are so many brilliant passages in the books in particular that are fantastic and, and really heartwarming, you know, in, in many ways. And I think that's some of my favorite King writing is when in the midst of all of this horror, you actually get a real human connection. But I'll tell you, 
without a doubt, the hobbling scene in Misery by <laughs> Stephen King moment, because Ooh. I had never before in my life, I remember being in English class and we were given an opportunity to do a report on, you know, whatever book we wanted to, and I wanted to, I wanted to read Misery. So we were given, given an opportunity to read just silently to ourselves in class. And when I got to that scene, and this has never happened before or <laughs> since, I literally had to put the book down and I just <laughs> got up and walked away. <laughs> like made an excuse to go to the bathroom or something, but it was like, oh my God, this is without a doubt the most viscerally disgusting thing I have ever put into my mind. And yes, the, the film version of it with the sledgehammer is equally graphic, mm -hmm. but the fact that it's an act in the book and yeah. just the description of it, I mean, it's still, it's still giving me shivers. Like, uh. <laughs> so yeah, that, that is without a doubt the most impactful single moment um, in a Stephen King story for me. Amazing. <laughs> oh, what about you, Norm? Oh, for me, I mean, I bet this is a lot of people's Stephen King moment is that final scene in Shawshank Redemption where Morgan Freeman, you know, makes the makes the decision to, you know, seek out Andy Dufresne and uh, and the emotional impact of that. Right. I mean, like, that's just a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful yeah, scene. And I remember being so impacted by the fellow who was before him in the um, the old guy that was in Shawshank. Was it Lloyd? Yeah, I think Lloyd. Yeah. So because that was just such a, a heartbreaker, right? The guy's yeah. so institutionalized. He can't that make he it. can't live on the outside. Yeah. And and the, the whole kind of following that path where, you know, like that's that could be where Morgan Freeman goes, but then he decides to to kind of go the other path. It's like I just like I love I love stuff like that. I'm a real mushy guy. No, that's so, that's great. Sorry. We haven't had an answer like that one before. And we haven't had that one from Shawshank. And so it's nice to hear that there is a, a heartfelt, pleasant Stephen King moment for at least one person out there. <laughs> Although it always amazes me that when we ask these questions, no one, it's not a negative experience for anybody. It might be terrifying or frightening, but it's something they speak of fondly. And that's one of the reasons that we love Stephen King. Absolutely. Yeah. We love having filmmakers on the show because you guys have such, you have such a unique job to take something uh, that is on the page and make it something physically that we get to experience. What started your love in filmmaking in the first place? It's been a really long road for me personally. I, uh, you know, I fell in love with movies. I think to be perfectly honest, there were two movies in particular that really got me eventually to be where I am today. And that was the very first movie I ever saw in a theater. Um, when I, again, was, I was probably about five or six years old and the daycare center that I was at, a childcare center, um, my mom was a working single parent. And so I spent a lot of time around other people and they took us to a, a theater in Hamilton, Ontario, where I was living at the time. And there was a, a film version of a Mordecai Richler book called Jacob Tutu Meets the Hooded Fang. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. It's a Canadian thing. And that was just, it was unbelievable to me, like that I, that I was sitting there. I mean, I'd seen stuff on TV before, but just the scope of this thing and the story was very interesting. But then, the, like so many filmmakers, it was Star Wars. <laughs> you know, I, I went and saw Star Wars at a, at a drive-in movie theater. Although, interestingly enough, when it was first released in 77, I went and saw it and I was only four years old and I fell asleep. It was like a four-feature marathon or something like that. And I fell asleep during Star Wars and woke up <laughs> during... A Phantom of the Paradise. I don't know if you're familiar with that film at all, but it was a, a, a 70s disco version of the Phantom oh. of the Opera. Um, it's, it's an amazing film. If you ever get a chance to see it, it, it is really, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's very, 
of its time. But I thought that was Star Wars. So I went to I went to the vacant center and I was I was so excited because I'd seen Star Wars and then I was describing this movie to my friends and they were like, What are you talking about? That is not the movie. So I didn't actually see it proper until the 78 re-release. But at that point forth, I was like, as soon as I f- was basically figured out that this is something that people could do for a living, I knew that I wanted to be an actor or, or a director of some sort and ultimately went into theater because um, that's what was available to me growing up in high school, musical theater in particular. Then I went to uh, drama school in New York and, and did a lot of touring. But I'd always, you know, I'm obsessed with movies and television and I've, that's really always been sort of my go-to thing. But I just didn't really ever necessarily think that it was something that I could ultimately do as a career until I met Norm, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'd done some acting in film before and commercial stuff, and I did a little bit of writing and producing for a documentary about Barkerville and the gold rush. But Norm and I met through Barkerville because he was my ad sales rep at the Prince George Citizen, which is the daily newspaper in Prince George, which is the big you know, population center close to Barkerville. And through our conversations there, we just Re, you know, recognized our mutual love for film. And he and some friends from high school had al- had already been making some short films together. And he invited myself and a couple of other people to, to join them. So we started making these little short grindhouse horror movies. And uh, and that, that ultimately led directly to The Doctor's Case, which really is what kickstarted our careers as, as working filmmakers. I mean, now people are actually paying us to make movies. <laughs> kind of nice. <laughs> How about you, Norm? Okay, so when I was young, I actually, we didn't have daycare. I spent a lot of time by myself, and my mom was like, she worked two jobs, and basically, she would leave me a few bucks every day, so I'd rent three movies. I would I would literally, I started in like the kind of fantasy section, fantasy sci-fi, worked my way through comedy, drama, horror, but literally, I was watching three movies every day, so that was always just like, for me... Like I was just consuming them and I was like, oh, this is amazing. I, you know, like I want to actually be a filmmaker one day. And I got a job in a video store when I was like 16. And then shortly after that, I can't remember exactly when it came out, but I mean, Clerks was like such a a massive film for me. And I was just like, I love dialogue, right? Like I'm a huge dialogue guy. And, and so I went to, uh, I took some screenwriting classes in college at that point, Mallrats had come out. That was actually one of the the books that we actually got to study. So, I mean, like I was kind of like, my career was kind of uh, coming through like Kevin Smith. And just, I love listening to him talk. Huge fan of the podcast, Fat Man Beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much so that we actually brought Fat Man Beyond to Prince George. What? Uh, and they did a live, uh, a live broadcast of it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so pretty right. cool, right? But uh, that was like my kind of inroad. And of course, yeah, the same with James. Well, I was basically like, I, all of my biggest successes personally have been being situated in Prince George, which is in North, Northern British Columbia, being like, why can't we do something like that here? So I was like, you know, we should be, why don't we try and make a movie, right? And it's funny because like the, the movies that we started making, as James mentioned, were, were like Grindhouse and very simple. And then they graduated to more complex. We got a little bit more confident. We started asking guests of our, fan convention, you know, if they would want to be in our movies, right? And mm-hmm. then, you know, like we got Denise Crosby mm-hmm. and then Michael Coleman. So like people who are actually working actors who have like legit TV credits. I mean, Denise Crosby was in, she was the female lead in Pet Cemetery. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the fact that we were able to actually like secure folks like that. And then now we've actually made sort of a name for ourselves for doing that. Now people are reaching out to us and they're like, hey, would you be interested in this, that or the other thing? 
And it's funny because that's sort of like our lens has been, or for me, my lens has always been like the event kind of space leading into like the film space and how can they, how can we kind of build them together to make something that, you know, will help escalate our careers, right? Yeah, that's so awesome. Like, it's so great to take an approach that is not chasing where everyone else is trying to make something happen, but deciding that I'm going to make this happen in, in my community, in my neck of the woods, bring these people here and just putting in the hard work to make connections. Like, that's super inspiring. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, like for both James and I, we're networking beasts. <laughs> we want to be friends with everybody and we want to learn from people, right? So, and it's honestly, it's served us so well. We're authentic, right? Like we're just like, we're, we're good dudes. We, we maybe don't care about money enough. And you know, like, <laughs> so, but that's always like, people are like, oh, you guys are good guys. You know, I, I would work with you, that kind of thing. Right. So the fact that we've been able to attract some pretty remarkable things to, to this region is uh, it is it's, it's something that we're both very proud of. And I think too, it speaks to sort of the nature of being out in what is considered to be you know, uh, a rural kind of environment. I mean, Prince George is still a very large city, you know, I mean, with the surrounding area, there's about 100,000 people, um, which I know is a small city in the States, but in Canada, it's, <laughs> it's still a pretty big city. But we're always forced to kind of make our own entertainment, right? Like where I live in Barkerville, which is, or Wells, which is close to Barkerville where I work, it's a tiny little mountain town, 300 people up at about 5,000 feet above sea level, right? So I get like seven months of really intense snow all the time. Oh, like it God. is still snowing right now in the, where I live and there's 20 foot snow banks. Like it's crazy, right? And it's a town of 300 people. So you have to like, you just have to do your own thing. There's a live professional theater there, which is great. It operates all year round, but gets a lot of people in the summer with the tourist traffic. But so we have these opportunities and there's all of these really intensely talented people that for whatever reason have come up into our region and have decided that, you know, the grind of Vancouver or Toronto or something is not really what they want. They want to have a little bit more of a relaxed lifestyle, but still want to do creative things. Mm -hmm. And like Norm said, we're very good at networking with people because we genuinely love all of this stuff. Like we're not, we're not doing this to be crafty or anything. We're just like, Hey, <laughs> we love this. Let's do this. And, and people seem to respond to that. So it's just like an evolution of that, like of doing just a small show or doing a concert or something like that. It's just on a slightly bigger scale now. Just across zoom, the two of you have a passion that's palpable. So I can only imagine how good you hustle in person. <laughs> well, we're good hustlers. <laughs> I really appreciate your guys' perspective on doing these things that you're passionate about because I feel like that speaks to the heart of what we do too in an area where maybe there isn't there are so many creative people, but nobody's really necessarily putting that to good use all the time. And I think Josh and I have talked about this. If nobody ever listened to us, we would keep doing this just because we love doing it and connecting with people and exploring these topics that you don't otherwise get to talk about as much as you want. That is great. And it and obviously people are listening, right? So you're, you're doing something that you're passionate about and there, you're finding that there's a lot of people who share that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's really cool. That is a great thing, especially the Stephen King community, which you guys are catching a lot of those good vibes right now. The Stephen King community is one of the most supportive in the world. Horror fans are the best. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know, right? And it's so funny because, you know, people 
from outside of of that community would look in and and think that we would all be a bunch of morose, you know, emo kind of uh, <laughs> people, and and in and nothing could be further from the truth. Like there, it it maybe it's weird that horror and gore and everything brings us a tremendous amount of joy, um, but but yeah, I mean the sharing of that joy is is palpable mm-hmm. across across the world, right? Yeah. Let's go ahead and dive into the the real meat, the real reason we brought you here. Let's talk about the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival, which is coming up April 23rd through the 25th. What was the catalyst for this fantastic idea? Really, it, it, it all stemmed from us even understanding what a dollar baby was because you know I've been I've been a Stephen King fan for a really really long time but it wasn't until 2016 that I'd even heard the term dollar baby and I I'm amazed that I hadn't heard of this before because filmmaking was something that I was very interested in Stephen King is something I'm super interested in and I had never you know it had never been put together uh, for me but a friend of mine in Vancouver actually was because I was I used to do this thing where like the doctor's case is the dollar baby film that we made and that is a Sherlock Holmes story that Stephen King wrote uh, back in 1986, I think. And it was for a collection of short stories that were being published to honor the 100th anniversary of the first publication of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet. And then, but I didn't really become familiar with it myself until 1993 when Night- Nightmares and Green- Dreamscapes came out. And it's it's in that collection. But I've always loved it because Sherlock Holmes and Stephen King were the things that were in my room when I was growing <laughs> up. You know, all of, the, all of the books. I was a huge fan of the Jeremy Brett Grenada series, uh, Sherlock Holmes. So it's just the two, these two really interesting and disparate kind of things coming together, I always just thought would make a really amazing film. And when I started working for Barkerville, which has 140 buildings and a lot of those buildings are done up like the interior of Victorian drawing rooms with real things. And this was like 20 years ago, but I firmly remember walking around thinking, well, you know, maybe we could try and do something. I wanted to try and figure out a way to make a movie anyway. And I love this story. Maybe I could try and adapt it. But of course, never went anywhere with it because why would I? I didn't have the right to do that Mm -hmm. and nobody would ever be able to see it. And I was telling that story to a friend in the spring of 2016 and she was like, well, you know, I, I think there's this thing called a dollar baby. Like you should you should look this up because um, a friend of hers had been telling her about it. And I did and you know, went to stephenking.com and found the page on the dollar baby deal. And lo and behold, on the list of available stories was the doctor's case. So at that point, I knew that we had to do this, you know, and uh, and that's sort of what's what led to, to the making of that film. Then to flash forward to the festival, we, we got quite a, a, a good response for the doctor's case. It's played in more than 40 international festivals over the wow. last three years. We've won a number of awards. It was just a really such a positive experience all the way around that last year, just as the pandemic was really starting to take hold, Norm and I discussed the idea of, well, maybe this would be a great opportunity because part of the Dollar Baby deal is that you can raise money to make the film, you can show it at, at festivals, you just, you just can't make any money from it. It's a non-commercial agreement with King's Foundation, and you can't put it online. Like, it's very strict in the contract, no more than two minutes of your footage in a trailer can be, can be put online for people to see. But because of the nature of the pandemic and seeing how many festivals were having to, to not operate, or move on to a virtual platform, we knew that all of these Dollar Baby filmmakers who were making their movies right then were suddenly not going to have an opportunity 
to show their work to anybody. So we hail married. We we wrote a, a proposal to um, Margaret Morehouse, who is is one of King's personal assistants, and she looks after the Dollar Baby program. And then didn't hear anything back, and that was no fault of her own. Um, you know, there was a lot of things going on in those early days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It just seemed to be an email that 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 didn't make it right in front of her because she's always been really really good about communicating. She's a really wonderful person, and so we kind of just left it. And then we noticed that there were some opportunities that people were being given to show their work for a limited time online. And so in this past February, I reached out to Margaret again to sort of say, hey. You know, I realized that, you know, this has been a really busy year and probably we haven't had an opportunity to look at this. But if there was a way that we could maybe make this work, we would love an opportunity to bring all of these films together in one place online just to give people, even for just a weekend, an opportunity to see as many of them as they possibly could and really get an opportunity to see what these great emerging filmmakers have been doing uh, with King's work with his permission. And she got back right away and and again was like, then we figured out what the communication snafu was and within an hour she had an answer, I think from King himself, basically saying, yes, you can go ahead with the festival. And then it just became about contacting as many of the dollar babies as we could think of trying to figure out a way that we could we could put as many of their films as possible into a three-day period and then just kind of it started to roll forward from there and and i'm sure norm can speak a little bit about the publicity angle of it one thing is is like james and i kind of almost intuitively we want to help other filmmakers like that's like a that's a thing for us right so so that played really a, a huge role in this as well as obviously i mean like James said, people can actually watch over that three-day period. They'll have a bit of an escape, right? So, I mean, like, we, we live in a pretty crappy COVID kind of scenario right now. So, for us, it was like, this is a really beautiful thing that we can share all these films and that people have not seen before and everybody will get that exposure. It's funny because for me in general, no matter what our crazy ideas are or whatever, James and I always have, like, these, these kind of schemes that we're doing where it's like, we're going to try and get this film project going or... Or, you know what, we're going to do this this kind of like comic convention or whatever. I always do these like press releases where I'm just like throwing them out as many possible places as as I can. I'm sure that people are like, who is this guy? Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, where's Prince George? What does that even mean? <laughs> and what's crazy is we did the press release for this one. And obviously it's because Stephen King is such a big deal for so many people. It got picked up by Comic Book Resource. It's funny because we have our little group. There's uh, myself, James, and uh, Leah Coglin, who is like a social media guru here, um, who has been like working the Twitter and and all that kind of stuff. And we've been sharing like all of a sudden we've got this comic book resources has uh, has covered the the film and it's my press release. I'm like they changed the words like just a little bit. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. Right. And then that spread to like Mashable and Nerdist. Well, because actually Stephen King himself retweeted the comic book resource story through Bev Vincent, who is a fellow Dollar Baby filmmaker who we met along the way because we've been reaching out to these folks. Right. We want to build relationships with them. And then so from there, we're like, oh, my God, James and I are like having a stroke, basically. (laughs) (laughs) He retweeted us. (laughs) Truth be told, I've been trolling Stephen King since we made the dollar. (laughs) I mean, I make the doctor's case, right? So so I'm like always like, hey, man, you know, look at what we're doing. (laughs) Egg Stephen King. So I'm sure he's like, who is this dude again? (laughs) But, But 
So that was pretty crazy. Then all of a sudden we're getting coverage from Nerdist and Stephen King retweeted that. He retweeted our local news station, CKPG. Wow. That's awesome. Like, how cool is this? And I'm like, oh my God, right? And with uh, those ones too, I just want to jump in. Like he actually commented on the retweets as well. It wasn't just him hitting the retweet yeah. button. Like he, he actually had something to say about it, which was amazing. <laughs> right? yeah. Honestly, it's been super surreal. It's interesting because just like being in his orbit, and I think it's also because people recognize it's Goodwill. Like lots of people were shocked that this festival is completely free. Mm -hmm. Like we're any associated costs or anything like that, we're bearing those. Again, and that's kind of like for us, it's not about, you know, trying to exploit it. It's like just sharing and making sure that we're we're helping these other filmmakers who are Dollar Baby Fellows, you know, to get eyes on their project. The response has been like absolutely insane. And I even like our our YouTube channel was like, I think we had like 170 subscribers on it. And it's like grown by like 800 or seven, seven or 800 like subscribers just since we started our little campaign, right? So it's pretty crazy and, and honestly very, very special and, and profound to be able to do this for folks. It's nice to be rewarded for doing genuinely good work. Like, you know, that's, that's fantastic. It feels like I'm getting more and more excited sitting here listening to the two of you talk about this. This is so great. So speaking of, we've, we've kind of danced around like what exactly it is we're talking about here. What can people who are going to tune into this event expect when they do that? I don't know if there are listeners that you have that don't really know what the Dollar Baby deal is, but the idea is that, you know, student filmmakers or emerging filmmakers can make a deal with with King wherein he will allow for a dollar, he'll give you the, the non-commercial rights for a year to try and develop and then ultimately make a film out of one of his unlicensed short stories. And many of those films are between 10 minutes and 30 minutes long because they're short stories. So they're, you know, they're they're able to to really grab the the meat of that story in a short period of time. Ours is a little bit longer. Ours is officially feature length. It was 65 minutes long just because I, I knew that we needed to get as much of King's actual writing into it as we possibly could, plus do a little bit of adapting on our own. Um, and then there's even, we also have J.P. Scott's Everything's Eventual, which was the first feature length Dollar Baby, um, which is is uh, 90 minutes long as well. So it, it really runs the gamut. So the, you'll notice, you know, if you do have an opportunity to check out our schedule on barkerstreetcinema.com or .ca, you'll see that there are, there are plenty of films that are like around the 15 minute mark. And then there's a whole, whole slate of films that are around 30 to 40 minutes. And then we get into some of the longer ones as well. So it's just a real cornucopia of little Stephen King offerings and the, the quality of the films, you know, a lot of them are on shoestring budgets. Um, some of them like ours, we had two very successful crowdsourcing campaigns in order to raise as much money as we could, especially when we knew we were ultimately going to be shooting in the locations that we were, we knew that we needed travel money and, and accommodation money. So we had a little bit more of a, of a budget than some of them do. But I'll tell you, like, for example, a fellow who's now a good friend of mine uh, through Facebook, a fellow named James Cole, in the 80s, uh, made a, a, a Super 8 version of The Last Rung on the Ladder, which is that beautifully poignant story that King wrote. It's I think it was in the Night Shift collection, but it's not really a horror story at all. It's just about the relationship between a guy and his sister. You know, he had no budget and a Super 8 camera, and he created, in my opinion, one of the most emotionally impactful adaptations of Stephen King's work I've ever seen. 
you know, and so we get to showcase that as well. And so everyone who comes to the festival and comes online and, and checks out these films, they're going to see a whole gamut of things. And some of the production values are going to be way more intense than some of the others. But I think that because of that, you know, the, the common denominator is King and, and the quality of his writing. All of those stories are going to be equally interesting to watch. Adding to that, also what uh, audience, viewers, uh, anybody who's tuning in for the Dollar Baby Film Festival, we will be doing Q&As, interview kind of panel discussions with the filmmakers after each of the project screens. And we'll be doing like a live tweet along and, and all that kind of stuff. So again, to, to allow, you know, like those filmmakers to, to have some spotlight, right? And to, to really bask in, in the glory of actually being able to share their projects you know, potentially some of them for the first time. And if if Norm doesn't mind me giving you a scoop on something that we haven't even released yet. <laughs> Ooh, I love a scoop. One of the most exciting things for me is that for our talk back on the doctor's case, we have managed to reassemble almost the entire cast of the film. Whoa. Who will be there, including Denise Crosby. Oh, man. So... Uh, <laughs> So Sam Norm, just Norm might be mad for me to, to leak that right now, but uh, I'm super excited about that. I am that on my way. <laughs> it's the first time we'll all be together in, in, in yeah. this case, a virtual space uh, since we since we wrapped shooting three years ago. So it's, it's really quite uh, four years ago, actually. Yeah, we released three years ago. Um, so I'm really excited about that for sure. That sounds amazing. You said that you have you have 25 submissions that you have selected. Was that pretty much everybody that you guys hand selected how was that submission process did you have to watch things make hard decisions or how did that go putting this together we basically like there's a there's a couple of groups that are specifically online platforms for dollar babies and and whatnot we basically we didn't want to exclude anyone because it's all like there's range of talent right there's range of of skill level there's range of resources right but everybody is absolutely a committed filmmaker who deserves to have eyes on their projects. With that, we basically did a call out. And what you see in the schedule is everybody who who basically wanted to come on board. There were some submissions that we we didn't get to because we almost like it's hard, right? You, you kind of have like like for us, we have a limited amount of resources and we can't be, you know, rolling through and managing. So there was a couple of that we that didn't make it into this one. But I mean, who knows? Maybe there will be another opportunity like this down the road where you know, like we can we can get those folks on board, but that is yeah, very much. It's like we we wanted it to be for everyone who had a Dollar Baby film project. Now you talked about maybe if, if the the cards fell and you could do this again, is this something that you might try to do maybe next year when we can be have people in person? Is that something you guys have even talked about? For sure, we'd like to do it every month. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you guys are just dedicating your entire lives to this from now on. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I may be overstepping too, like by saying, you know, like if, if we could do another one, but I mean, we would love to, you know, like see this kind of thing happen again, for sure. And maybe, maybe Stephen King will be watching. And I mean, he's, a, he very clearly is like paying attention. Yeah. Maybe he'll be like, you know what? I love what you guys did. You should do it annually or something like that. That would be amazing. For now, I mean, it's like just about doing this the best we possibly can and uh, and knocking it out of the park and really 
showing him that level of passion that we have and all that all the filmmakers have. And hopefully he's tuning in. That would be amazing. Yeah, that'd be great. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. He seems very in touch with the creative things that his fans do. He does. He definitely seems that way for sure. And I and I think. Yeah, I mean, we would we would really hope that would be the dream that he would <laughs> that he would tune in at some point for sure. But even if even if he doesn't, you know, that we we have Bev Vincent, who is a, an, an amazing guy and a, and a friend of King's uh, who's agreed to be part of it. And we're going to have a good conversation about some of the stuff that, that they've done together because Bev has become a very good friend of mine, too, that that he will at least relay uh, some of the information uh <laughs> To, to the master himself. So if, if if that's only what happens and he hears good things about it, then that's good enough for me. But it, also, it would be so <laughs> awesome if he did actually tune in. Absolutely. Sure. It's not like he doesn't have anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's COVID. I mean, maybe yeah. right now he doesn't. <laughs> you gave us the, the scoop about your panel, talked about Bev Vincent. Is there anyone else, any, any film or guest that you are just really excited for, like you're excited and you're excited to share with other people. Is there any like a standout? Well, I think there's a couple that we're we're holding back uh, just to make sure that everything works out in the schedule. Oh, and if it does, then we'll definitely talk about that. Hopefully, okay. maybe you'll invite us back. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest, for me, there is there is a fellow that that I want to give a shout out to, and that's a guy named Anthony Northrup. And Tony has run for several years one of the larger uh, Stephen King Facebook fan pages called ATK, All Things King. He very recently wrote and published a book based on a series of interviews that he's done over the past probably seven or eight years with the Dollar Babies. He's probably the one guy who's interviewed the most Dollar Baby filmmakers, and he's published them in various places, but um, eventually was convinced to, to do a collection of sort of the the cream of his of his idea of what you know the, he curated the the interviews that he that he wanted to collect in the book and then he invited invited each of the filmmakers to also submit an essay about some aspect of their filmmaking process when it came to the dollar baby and the book is called Stephen King Dollar Baby the book um, it just came out a couple of months ago it's a really fantastic resource it's such an interesting compendium of very different personalities with very different relationships with Stephen King. And so Anthony was one of the first people that we contacted to see if he wanted to be a part of the festival as a co-host. So he'll be doing some of the the post-screening interviews for us. Um, We'll also have him on a panel so that he can talk about what it's like to not be a Dollar Baby filmmaker, but still be such an important part of the Dollar Baby experience for people. And uh, he's such a great guy that it's it's really uh, an awesome opportunity for us to kind of showcase what it is that that he's been up to over the last few years. That's super exciting. Now we've talked about the festival. I want to talk about the doctor's case. So we've already kind of discussed that you you loved it before you even found out you could have it. Once you had it, can you kind of just tell us about what that process was like? You have an amazing cast. The trailer for it looks amazing. Can you just tell us kind of how all these things came together? Sure. As I said, in 2016, I found out about the Dollar Baby program, and I think that was in April of 2016. And then in May, Norm's uh, Northern Fan Con had already become a a big hit in Prince George uh, the previous couple of years. One of the people that we invited up to Fan Con was Michael Coleman, who played um, Happy the Dwarf on ABC's Once Upon a Time. But he's an old friend of mine back from our theater days in Vancouver. So I've known him for years. 
And he was a guest at FanCon because, A, because of Once Upon a Time, which was insanely popular, but also he's quite a prolific voice actor. He's been on Dragon Ball Z and like all, all sorts of things. And so I had just found out about the Dollar Baby deal. I hadn't applied for it yet, but he and I were chatting at FanCon and I, and I was looking at him and thinking, you know, he would make a really interesting Watson, like a young Watson, because he's a very small guy, he, you know, but he's got a real sort of compact kind of physicality to him. And, and the idea of playing up on this, this idea that Watson was a military doctor. So, he, you know, I just felt that there was a bearing that he had that could totally work. And he was really interested in it because it's not really the kind of role that he would normally be cast in. And, uh, and he's a friend. So, you know, he was, he was very willing to basically do it for nothing. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we chatted about it and we got really excited about it. And this was May of 2016. And then we didn't do anything with it for about five months. Like it just, <laughs> it just sort of fell off the radar. And then I was in Barkerville doing some promotional video with a fellow named JP Winslow, who is a, a very good actor, friend of mine, again, who has worked in the region for, for years also had worked at, in the theater scene with Michael. So they, they had a relationship before too. And I just realized, and he's a huge Sherlock Holmes fan, uh, JP. Like he, he has read everything about Conan Doyle as well as everything that Doyle has written. I think it was like the end of September of, of 2016, early October. I said to him like, look, would you be interested in doing this? Would you play Sherlock Holmes if I, if I got the rights to make this movie? And he told me flat out that I was insane for even thinking about him to play Sherlock Holmes because he's not six feet tall and doesn't have the <laughs> nose and all the rest of it. He's a fairly small guy as well. He does not look like your traditional Sherlock Holmes, but he said he would do it regardless. And so the minute that happened, then things started to roll. We started, I, I immediately, I went from that conversation, went to stephenking.com. There's like a little 300 word text box where you type in your proposal. This is what I want to do. And they say, allow four to eight weeks for a response. Three days later, there was a contract in my email inbox and we were set to go. And then suddenly <laughs> it was like, okay, well now we really have to do something here. <laughs> and that's when I thought about Denise Crosby because I knew that, with the doctor's case, the thing about it is that it's a it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. And it's told very much the way a typical Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes story is. It's Dr. Watson relating the events of a story that happened, but he's talking in the first person. In this case, it happens to be that he's in his 80s when he's relaying this story because Holmes by this point has been dead for a long time and he feels like he can actually tell the story of the one and only time he solved a case before Sherlock Holmes did. But I knew that I didn't want it to be just narrative or or have, you know, an older actor sitting writing the story and then we go into the into the backstory. I knew that I wanted to have an older Watson actually talking to somebody. And through a whole series of conversations with my father actually, who is a, a World War II military historian and author in his own right, he suggested that if we sort of altered the timeline of the story a little bit, the story itself takes place in 1899. We set it back to 1889 so that 50 years after that would be smack dab in World War II. Mm. And wouldn't it be interesting if this conversation that is occurring with the older Watson is happening during the Blitz, for example. Wow. And therefore it gives a slightly more, you know, immediate and, and intimate kind of conversation. And so then it was like, okay, well, what would this, maybe he's in a hospital for some reason, or he's somehow laid up and he's talking to a nurse, a military nurse. And that's when I realized that 
there are a lot of dudes in that story. Like it's a it's a Sherlock <laughs> Holmes story. There's not a lot of women in the story. There's two, and they don't really even say much in the story. I wanted to make sure that whoever it was that Watson was talking to was a woman, and and a woman who would have a secret of her own. So I knew that it needed to be somebody who could really kind of take that that and run with it. And we'd met Denise Crosby in Barkerville, of all places, <laughs> because... In the year prior to, to launching FanCon, Norm had this great idea to kind of play test a little bit of a fan convention at Barkerville during a, a regular geek weekend that we, we've we been doing for years um, at the very end of our season. And he managed to reach out to Denise Crosby's agent and uh, a couple of other people as well. And they signed on to come to Barkerville and do uh, some signings and do a little, you know, Q&A with some people at our old Theater Royal. And we hit it off with her. Like she just, she, she just totally got it. Like she is one of the most genuinely nice people I've ever met. And, you know, she has good reason to, to be, to consider herself Hollywood royalty. I mean, Bing Crosby is her grandfather, <laughs> you know, she was on Star Trek, the next generation. She was the lead in Pet Cemetery. But I, you know, we had had a, a we'd kept up a very brief kind of email exchange every every couple of months we would chat with each other so right after we got the deal signed i immediately emailed her to say okay i have this stephen king project that i'm working on and you probably aren't going to want to be a part of it but is there any way that i could talk to you about writing a character specifically for you that would help us tell this story and to our absolute delight she said well why don't you guys come down to LA and we'll we'll chat about it we'll have we'll have lunch and we'll chat That's about awesome. it awesome <laughs> right so norm and i went down in december of that year didn't even have a script yet you know it was just like we're just going to we're going to make the elevator pitch of the century here <laughs> and she said yes she and and again almost for nothing like she she really uh, did us a huge favor so that's how we got her on board and then um, because then i knew that we needed to have somebody of her caliber not that our actors weren't great they are but like somebody with formidable television and film kind of experience that could be that older watson again through a series of happy accidents we got in touch with william b davis's agent the cigarette smoking man from the x-files uh which was another huge thing for me yeah. when i was in high school so the idea that we could be doing the x-files as well as stephen king and sherlock holmes was like, ah. and again he we had a script by that point and we sent it to him he read it he liked it enough and and he climbed on board so then suddenly we're like okay now we've got two powerhouses we've got michael as as sort of our ringer in the in the main cast we're we're still thinking at that point that we're going to that we're going to film it at Barkerville. I wasn't sure how we were going to do exteriors because Barkerville is a wooden town in the middle of a forest which does not look like Victorian sure. London at all. <laughs> but serendipity has sort of been our buzzword all the way through and it started with the doctor's case because I happened to be at a tourism conference in Jasper, Alberta and met an old friend who had been another theater friend from my days in Victoria on Vancouver Island who now was also in the museum field and she happened to be the visitor services person at Craig Derrick Castle in Victoria and Craig Derrick Castle is a massive mansion uh, Scottish baronial in style that was built in 1889 by a, a, an a very wealthy industrialist named Robert Dunsmuir, who actually died before the, the house was completed. So his family only lived there for a year and then couldn't live there anymore and they, and they moved out. But it's this massive museum now and it, all of the rooms are done up in, in the most exquisite way and there's exotic woods on uh, on the walls in paneling and such. Electric lights were installed in the castle in 1889. That's exactly how rich these people wow. were. Right? And so all of the fixtures and everything are original. 
I was talking to, to my friend and just sort of said, I know you're not going to be able to say yes to this because I used to work in the heritage field in Victoria. That castle rents out easily for $5,000 a day to the film industry. Jesus. And I said to Kate, like, is there any way that we could kind of come up with some sort of deal where you'd let, because, you know, we're not doing this for money. Nobody's making anything. And we want to showcase heritage in British Columbia. And like Barkerville, Craig Derrick is a National Historic Site of Canada. And to my surprise, again, she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll at least take this back to our our board of directors and see what they say. And within a couple of weeks, they said, all right, I'll tell you what, as long as you don't make us shut the museum down, if you start filming after 5.30 p.m. and like go into the wee hours of the morning, they didn't realize exactly how wee hours the morning. <laughs> they basically shot from 5.30 to 5.30 every day wow. in the castle. But they all they did was charge us staff time that so they could have two curatorial assistants there to make sure that we didn't wreck the place. And they, they definitely earned their money because we wouldn't had they not been there for sure. Not, not on purpose. Right. But once we got Craig Derrick, then it was like, okay, now we need we need to raise as much money as we possibly can. And that's where the Kickstarter campaign came in and then ultimately an Indiegogo campaign as well. We got Emily Carr House. Emily Carr is a very famous Canadian painter. And the house that she was born in is also in Victoria and it's a beautiful Victorian mansion. Well, like little, not really a mansion, it's a smaller home. But we knew that that could be the interior of the Baker Street apartments. And then because Victoria prides itself on being more English than the English, there are actual little squares that have cobblestones and brick buildings and everything. So suddenly we had all of our exteriors as well. So basically the main expense and logistical nightmare was bringing our Prince George and area crew to Victoria, which is, you know, 500 kilometers away, like 300 miles away on an island, you know, and in, in April when every, all, every tourist and their mother wants to be there. Oh, so God. accommodation is really difficult. Uh, but it all, you know, it all worked out. It was, it, it was pretty amazing. That's a, you guys are the epitome of swinging for the fences. Like it is so cool to like hear, like just the, the way you t can talk so candidly about going in with no idea how people are going to react and just like, yeah, we're going to make this happen. I was going to ask what your, your takeaways from this experience are, but it sounds like just ask. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of hubris, that's for sure. <laughs> However, thankfully, it's not like hubris in Greek tragedy where it gets you in trouble. So right. far, our overweening pride has has actually helped us, it seems. But yeah, that is that is that would be my takeaway, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny. My dad used to say that all the time to me, and of course, I I barely listened to him at the time. But his his thing was always if if you don't ask the question, the answer is always no. Yeah. And, and that really is, it's kind of like a mantra. Like there is no harm in asking. Yes, we can look like idiots, but we're probably <laughs> going to look like idiots anyway. So you might as well just ask the question because it gives people an opportunity to say yes. And when they do, it's magic. This next question is kind of going off of that. It's kind of twofold because when we have done these interviews in the past, you know, just within the last about 18 months, we ask this question and it's always been kind of a, a sad question. And it's, you know, how has COVID affected the entertainment industry? You know, what what do we anticipate or expect moving forward? But listening to the two of you talk, it just seems 
like it's much more hopeful. You found a way to take advantage of the situation and do something really awesome through it still. And so I was curious, um, because a lot of our fans are incredibly supportive and generous, as are pretty much any horror fan I've ever met. Is there a way that we and our listeners can support what you're doing? Either, you know, you said this is all out of your pocket, you know, would that be financially? Or is there another way you would like people to support your community and what you're doing right now? So I think that the best way to support, we we don't need, I mean, obviously anybody wants financial support, but we don't need that. The best thing to do is just follow us. Part of the reason, like I think we've, we've alluded to it a few times, part of the reason why we're able to do the things that we do is because we've been able to make connections. And the easiest way to make connections is to get, you know, like get out there and and, you know, like, uh, so like following our YouTube uh, channel would be amazing or, or just uh, following us on Twitter and, and resharing tweets or, or even like, you know what, not just us, follow the filmmakers that are all a mm-hmm. part of like the dollar baby program, right? Like follow them all uh, yeah. because that's like, that's going to help those guys. And that's like, for us, we're, we're a lot about empowerment and inclusivity, right? So if we can help those filmmakers or you know, like, or anybody else can, then that's, those are the kinds of things that should be happening. During COVID, initially, I was like, losing my mind because my event Northern FanCon basically was canceled, right? And James and I had two film productions planned that Hmm. we had to cancel. But then coming around to like where we are now, we just we never stopped kind of trying to chase opportunity. Right. And then all of a sudden, I mean, we filmed a feature film last month, we we got the go ahead from King for this for this film festival. I say to people, you know, like just just keep trying to figure out a way to to move things forward and and to make things happen, right? Like we're very lucky because that's just our nature. Yeah. <laughs> right? Kind of forces like, you to be creative in a way you might not have thought you could be creative. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And yeah, and to what Norm said, like definitely follow us and definitely interact with us because we answer, we answer emails, we answer tweets, you know, all of that sort of thing, because this is exactly what we love. And if there's any opportunity for us to, to be a little bit helpful for somebody who's thinking about trying to do a project of their own, um, we, d- we definitely want to be there and, and also want to take advantage of that. Because if people are doing some really great stuff and we can connect with them, then that means that ultimately we're going to be able to do some really great stuff together. Mm-hmm. And also watch the movies for the festival, like log in, even if you only see a couple of them. And some of them are only 10, 15 minutes long. So it's not even really that much of a time commitment. But the more eyes that we can get on this festival, the more that we can report back to King and his people and say, look, this is this is the kind of appetite that that is here. And, you know, I, I, I would imagine as any writer would. King really just wants his stories to be out there and and to be experienced by as many people as possible. So if we're able to go back to them and say, because you took a chance on us doing this, this is how much exposure we've we've been able to give to you, as well as uh, how much joy we've been able to bring to all of these other people. It's just going to make it all the more uh, a compelling argument to let us do it again. We're, we're coming to the end of our time, but before we, we start wrapping things up, uh, would you guys like to share any of the social medias or anything where, where people can follow you? For sure. Uh, so on YouTube, just look up Barker Street Cinema. It's, uh, I think we have the vanity URL, so we do. Uh, so it's youtube.com yeah. slash C slash, I don't know what that C is for. Do you know what that's for? <laughs> <laughs> it's youtube.com slash C slash Barker Street Cinema. Uh, on Twitter, it's Barker ST Cinema. And uh, on Facebook, Barker Street Cinema. Fantastic. 
Is there anything else that we we haven't talked about, haven't covered that you guys want to share uh, about your experiences or about the event before we we go? I would just like to reiterate something that you said about horror fans in general, but uh, but specifically about Stephen King fans, is that it is an incredible community to be to be a part of. Um, you know, like since we started this journey with the doctor's case, that the number of really cool people that we have met and and who have supported us even if it's just words of encouragement it's it's unlike anything else and let's all keep flying our geek flags really <laughs> as high as we possibly can and and continue to to be uh, an interactive community fantastic once again thank you to our guests and uh i'm gonna speak for all of us our new best friends for taking the time <laughs> out of the intense deadline you guys have. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having uh, us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you're looking forward to this film festival as much as we are, join us April 23rd through 25th for the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival live streaming on Vimeo and YouTube. The links will be provided in the show notes of this episode and on our social medias. Follow the event with the hashtag Stephen King Rules. For James Douglas, Norm Coyne, and C.M. Alexander, this is Joshua Kahn reminding you, sometimes all you have to do is ask. Hey everyone, C.M. Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of our interview with James and Norm from Barker Street Cinema. Please check them out and be sure to tune in to the festival April 23rd through 25th. You can learn more about Barker Street Cinema at barkerstreetcinema.com or .ca. Please follow them on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash Barker Street Cinema. And you can find them on Twitter and Facebook at Barker Street Cinema. Don't forget to interact and follow along with the festival using the hashtag Stephen King Rules. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.